From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. When your space has the long-lasting, noticeable scent of Airwick Vibrant Essential Mist, you'll want to invite everyone over. From book club to reality TV watch parties, even the in-laws. It smells amazing. Airwick Vibrant Essential Mist is infused with two times more essential oil versus regular Airwick Essential Mist for our most authentic, nature-inspired fragrance experience. Airwick Vibrant Essential Mist is perfectly portable and effortlessly easy. The way fragrance should be. Now that's a breath of fresh Airwick. This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. Evolution does some pretty funky things. There's chemistry in here. There's biology in here. The old question in science is how do you know that? Achievement equals skill times effort. That's the recipe for success. I'm about to show you something so cool it'll blow your mind. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye, and this is the show where science rules. It's a call-in show. If you want to be on the show, and I hope you do, leave us a voicemail at 201-472-0785 or go to your homepage, askbillnye.com, askbillnye.com. You can also check me out on all the social media that the kids use to find out uh, about our upcoming guests. And today I am joined once again, yes, my friends, by science writer, editor, and dear friend, Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey. Greetings, Bill. Nice to be here, or at least nice to hear you. Uh, you know, we're living in strange times. So many things have changed in this world during the era of the COVID pandemic. One of the subtle changes that's had a surprisingly big effect on me is the change in sound. Uh, you know, I, I'm living here in New York City, and when the city went into full isolation in the spring, it was just striking how quiet things became. You didn't hear traffic didn't hear all the sounds of the Brooklyn people on the street uh, on alternate side parking day. I didn't hear the guys saying, no, you move your car. They was just like, <laughs> it was so weird. It changed and intensified that whole feeling of isolation because the sound environment changed so much. And it made me aware of just how much those little sonic cues, how much they affect me, how much of a psychological effect they have on me. I heard about that. <laughs> See what I, I yes. heard? I heard nice. about that. Well, today, Corey, we happen to have an expert to help us understand the sounds around us. How Our convenient. Guest today is Dr. Trevor Cox. He is a professor of acoustic engineering at the University of Salford in England and author of The Sound Book, The Science of the Sonic Wonders of the World, and Now You're Talking, Human Conversation from the Neanderthals to Artificial Intelligence. Professor Trevor Cox, welcome to Science Rules. Greetings. May I call you Trevor? Of course you can. It's exciting to join you all the way from uh, England. So look, you're a professor of acoustic engineering. I'm a mechanical engineer. I, I'm into fluid mechanics as much as the next guy. But what do you do when you uh, acoustically engineer some? What is the last thing you acoustically engineered? Well, that's a, <laughs> I don't know what I last acoustically engineered. <laughs> uh, I suppose I suppose the audio setup for this Zoom call or this Zoom recording. Uh, you're re um, that's very up to date. Well, maybe what's what's one of the favourite things that you've acoustically engineered? I think I mean I started off my career in research working on concert hall acoustics. You know when you when you go and hear say an orchestra play, the room is playing a really important part to that experience. I mean if you go and hear an orchestra outside, you know when they're playing in the park, for example, it all sounds a bit thin and remote. But bring it into a hall, you're suddenly surrounded by these sounds. You get this enrichment and that's actually the room enriching the sound that the orchestra is making improving the sound of the orchestra so my early work was on on actually designing treatments you put in such rooms and uh yeah to be to the, th the thought of actually improving people's enjoyment of music is a is a great thing to work on do you model it or cre create a uh, uh, a mathematical picture of the concert hall is that where you start yeah i think when you're designing these kind of concert halls what 
you know, nowadays it would be very much based on computer models. If you go back 10, 20 years, they'd be making sort of literally dinky toys, little scale models of these concert halls to test. Um, But nowadays, yes, you'd make a computer model and you'd try and represent in the computer what happens to sound as it rattles around a room. So in a a concert hall, then most services are really hard uh, because the audience is absorbing. So the soft clothing on pe- which people are wearing is absorbing sound. And you want to get as many people in the concert hall as possible because they're paying punters. And therefore, you get make everything else as non-absorbing as you possibly can. So the orchestra sounds as loud as possible and can play to the largest o- uh, audience possible. And yeah, you're, you've, you're representing the equations of physics and how sound, when it goes up and hits surfaces, it, bounce off it, it bounces off it. Angle of instance equals angle of reflection, that kind of thing. Effects like diffraction. All these kind of things need to be modelled to actually predict how sound will move around a space. So uh, you did this because it's exciting and fun and cool. Uh, what's your background? Well, my background from a, you know, a scientist point of view is I did a physics degree. Yeah. So I did a little bit of sound in there. Um, but I was also, I've always been a musician. So as a, as a kid, I learned how to play the clarinet. Uh, as an adult, I've learned how to play the saxophone, which is what I mostly play nowadays. Um, and so I had this what love of music and I had this love of science and I brought them together. And actually, if you go to an acoustics conference and meet the acousticians, most of them are musicians or have been musicians. They have a musical interest. It what drags most people into this subject. So wait, do you get together with other acousticians? And, uh, do you have like an, an acoustics ba- jazz band or a quartet or something that you yeah. play with? Well, if you go along to, you know, like Acoustical Society of America uh, meetings, you will find one night will be jamming night and people will turn up and have a jamming night. And that's quite a common thing to have at acoustic conferences. But yeah, a lot of them play. I, I play in the university wind band. So look, here, here's something I wonder about. You talked about, so you're working on concert halls where obviously there's a lot of, there's a lot of money. There's a lot of reason to really focus on acoustics. We spend most of our lives in houses where as near as I can tell, nobody's really paying much attention to home acoustics. Do people pay attention to that of like how to how to make things more pleasant at home where we're spending most of our time, especially these days? Yeah, it's interesting because my career started off in concert hall acoustics, but has more and more moved to everyday places. Where I mean, I did a big project on school acoustics, for example. You would think it's fairly obvious that when a teacher turns up in a school, they ought to be taught, able to talk and be heard by the pupils, and the pupils, you know, be able to talk back to the teacher. But there are schools that are actually designed where that communication is really difficult because architects aren't trained orally; they're they're trained to meet standards, and they're main, they're trained really to work visually. And therefore, you can get these acoustic disasters that are built. Um, some some architects are good, but some of them uh, aren't so good. And uh, yeah, you can get really poor quality schools. Um, so yeah, I think the everyday space is more and more what I do research in. And it's really interesting. We've been discussing at Salford, the everyday space now being your home. I mean, you, people at home can't see where I am, but you can see that I'm in an attic, this illustrious office that I now have. Um and that's what, you know, what all these calls we're having online, you're seeing everyone's home and they're just working at home. And the, the classic problem we, we've had it during lockdown is that the next door neighbours decide to do a major building job. I think lots of people have suffered that. And then you suddenly realise all these noise problems that happen during the day, uh, during lockdown, and actually day to day that you're not, not familiar with. What's a mistake that leads to that sort of thing? The surfaces are too reflective? The surfaces yes. are too absorbent? What is it? So modern architectural trends, if you look, it's a lot of concrete, it's glass, it's steel, it's you know, hard marble floors, maybe not in a school that illustrious, maybe hard concrete floors. It's very hard surfaces. And we've all been in very large reverberant, say, atria, where you make a noise and the sound rattles around for ages. And if you're trying to speak, you need that sound rattling around, what's called reverberation, not to be too long. So go into a cathedral and talk and the sound's rattling around for ages you have to talk very slowly to allow the sounds to die away between the words because otherwise the words run into each other because of the reflections of the room. So you don't want too much reverberation, and that's one common problem, uh, particularly in old classrooms where they used to be double height and, uh, and therefore very, very large. But you also don't want the other case. So you might think, oh, we'll just make it all dead. Um, but we all know if you go outside and try and talk to someone, it's hard work. We actually want some reflections from surfaces to reinforce your voice. It's so much easier to work if you're getting some sound bounce off a few surfaces and amplifying things. Well, we have an expression, the sounding board. Mm. And uh, I've been to a Quaker meeting house where they had 
they still do have <laughs> yes. a curved a curved surface above this one end of the room where the elders would normally sit so that their voices would carry farther into the room. Bill, you know what I think but, we need to do? Yes. I think we need to get I think we need this, to get down to basics here. I think we need to yes, really get our hands that. on the fundamentals of what's happening when the sound is moving around. I'll bet we have a caller who could help us out. I with bet that. we do. I bet we do. Let's roll that digital recording. Hi, my name is Dylan. I am eight years old. And my question is, how does sound travel through the air? It's where you start, isn't it, Dr. Cox? That's the beginning. Yeah, what is actually moving through the air when you hear sound? I mean, there's somehow energy somewhere, but how is that energy moving? Yes, well, it's been it's been carried by the tiny little vibrations of air molecules. So as I talk to you now... Um, I'm pushing air out of my lungs and my vocal cords are vibrating open and closed, creating little vibrations of air. And that's what's coming out of my mouth. And then those vibrations get passed along through the air until in this case, they're picked up by my microphone. But if I was talking live to someone, it would be picked up by someone's ear at that point. And those little air vibrations are then turned into vibrations of body parts. The first thing is your eardrum vibrates. Then the little bones called the ossicles vibrate. And eventually it gets into the inner ear and it's turned into electricity and then goes up the brain so you can then actually interpret what it is. So it fundamentally, the sound through the air is little movements of air molecules, and it's tiny little changes in pressure. So people kind of think that sound's really powerful because we have really powerful responses to it. You know, when, when someone sings a very sad song, we might cry. You have a really, you know, uplifting song. It can be euphoric. Um, but actually, in terms of physical powers, it's a really tiny little force. It's little, tiny little oscillations. And the fact that our ear can pick this up because it's so, so weak is quite amazing. So along this line, sound is different from light in the sense that sound travels through a medium, through air or water or what have you, but light travels through vacuum. It's pure energy. So without the medium, you don't have any sound. Yeah, classic demonstration they do in schools is to take an alarm clock ticking or something, stick it inside a bell jar and take the air out using a vacuum pump and, and the, you can't hear it anymore because sound needs something to pass through. This is amazing. You, you just pointed out that your ear can pick up these tiny motions of molecules is amazing. And so you wrote a book about sonic wonders. What are some other sonic wonders? Yeah, I, I had this idea of actually finding out the sort of most incredible and remarkable sounds in the world. So some of those are architectural. So they could be something like the whispering, a whispering gallery. So we have one in St. Paul's Cathedral in London, where you have this big 30 metre across dome. And if you whisper into the walls, the sound skims around the edge and your friend can hear it emerging from the walls miraculously halfway across the, the room. Yeah, here uh, in the States, Corey and I, Corey Powell and I have been to Grand Central Terminal in New York City. And there's a place that... It's, it's not quite on the same scale, world. but it is remarkable the same way. It's about 10 meters. Yeah. It's about 10 meters, not 30, but it's pretty cool. I think it's pretty cool because it's it's a tiled surface. I, I've been there as well and played with it. It's a tiled surface, and I kind of think, well, maybe the tiles, because they're slightly lumpy, won't make it work. And it's very noisy, so I'm quite impressed it works uh, down at Grand Central. So there's architectural wonders like that, and they often involve curved surfaces because curved surfaces do do strange things like focus sound and amplify things. So are there, are there I, sound tourists who go to certain places to hear sounds? Well, certainly there are people who, you know, who, who email me to say, have you gone to this place? You should go here. And yeah, I, I have this website called sonicwonders.org. I don't maintain it very much anymore because of time. But um, yeah, people send me loads of ideas of things to go and see and hear. Is that the idea behind yodeling? This, this <laughs> cultural <laughs> myth? I, if this is the moment where you can actually understand yodeling, I will be very excited. <laughs> Where you go to a some place where it echoes and you make a sound of a certain reproducible pitch and wait for the echo. Is that what's going on with yodeling? Well, I mean, yodeling's got lots of uses, hasn't it? You've got the sort of classic cowboy singing through to, as you say, yodeling near the mountains. I mean, if you go and find an echo like it's going to come off a mountain, it's going to travel a long distance, so you need to make a loud sound. And, and, and yodeling is one way, I mean... One thing about your hearing is it's it's listening for changes. So if you go and make a very constant sound, it won't change very much, so it's not very distinctive. The great thing about going, you're delayed, hee-hoo. I, I wish I hadn't done that. Anyway, the great no, thing I'm about doing that, I, am, I, was, that. Yes. I was waiting for that. Are you kidding? I've been dying to hear it. 
is you've got that change in pitch and you can then hear the change in pitch in the echo so you can pick up the differences. So it's a, it's an obvious thing to pick because it's loud and because it's changing. And in fact, people, you know, there's things like whistling languages in the Canary Islands, which are, you know, people are whistling to communicate across mountains. And it's for a similar reason. It's loud. You can change the pitch rapidly. And so you can pass very simple information like, you know, your dinner's ready, come home or whatever it might be, or the goats escaped. Can you go and find it? Whatever whatever you're trying to communicate across these vast distances. So it's, it's difference in sounds that we pick up. Yeah, I mean, if you take, we've probably all got computers on in the background at the moment as we talk, but our our brains are ignoring the hum of those computer fans because it's constant, it's not interesting. First and foremost, our hearing is an early warning system. And that's the reason if someone suddenly slams a door downstairs or, you you know, your, your brain suddenly, you know, peaks and goes, oh, is that danger or not? And so it's all the time your senses are listening for changes because they're the interesting thing. The things that are going on in constant are not interesting because they're not usually conveying information. So this gets back into this business of your next book, which is uh, Human Conversation from Neanderthals to Artificial Intelligence. And this, So here's the thing. Uh, I am you know, born in the U.S., grew up speaking English and so on. It's, we do not have a tonal language. But I work with people who are, for their first language, is a tonal language. And people fluent in tonal languages pick up the tone. Are there three tones? They know which tone the person is using before they say any other sound, like without a difference, it seems to me. I don't know about the three tones, but certainly the the pitch of the notes and which direction it's going are very important, or the absolute pitch is very important in tonal languages. So in English... All we care about is sort of relative pitch. So if I was to go bat, but, bit, bot, I'm changing the vowel sound and they've got different pitches to them, which is the reason you can tell I've said a different vowel in the middle of each of those words. But their absolute pitch doesn't matter. I can say them bat, bit, but, bot at a higher pitch and you'll see no, soon know what they are. But in tonal languages, the absolute pitch becomes much more important and the, and the quality, you know, what that sound is doing becomes much more important to, to communicate the, the, the meaning and the information. So speaking of changing pitches, so I'm a mechanical engineer. I worked very briefly. I, well, I worked for a while on, a, on big plane, 747, but I worked on a, a fighter plane for a while that would go supersonic. And something that has always fascinated me is the shock wave. So this is where somehow the speed of, what is the speed of sound of a molecule? That's its natural speed at a given temperature. Is that just its resonant frequency? Or, yeah, this is, I'd love to understand that more deeply. So sound really isn't about individual molecules. Although individual molecules are, are passing the sound between them, it's actually more like the behavior of a, a bunch of molecules. It's a bit like you don't talk about the temperature of a molecule in the room. You talk about the average of temperature of all the molecules in the room. So you're talking about a bunch of molecules passing the sound wave from one to the other to the other. So it's actually about the properties of the gas. So, for example, uh, the, the speed of sound depends on temperature. So if I go into a warmer room, the speed of sound will go up because the, the uh, air molecules will pass sound between them quicker. So it's really about things like the density of the gas, the, the, the temperature of the gas is actually determining it's some of the determinants of what actually gives you that speed of sound, which is about 340 meters per second. Yeah, so then what's a shock? Yeah, or a sonic boom. What, what is a sonic boom? So a sonic boom happens when you have something that is moving faster than speed of sound. So you get that with uh, a fighter jet or you get that with a spacecraft. You can also get it with a whip, by the way. That's something I use in science demonstrations. You can use a, a ball whip and get it goes faster than the speed of sound and it creates a crack. Um, so what's happening is it, it, probably the best way of visualizing it is to think of actually a boat moving down a, a canal or, or, or a very calm lake. If it's moving slowly then you don't see a wake out the back. But as it goes fast enough, and it's exceeding what would be the wave speed, but it's equivalent of exceeding the speed of sound, you get these white water coming out the back. And that's actually what happens with a, uh, an aircraft as it's moving through the air as fast as the speed of sound. You get streaming out the back from edges. You get this equivalent of white water, but it's actually pressure turbulence. And that's actually what's creating the shock wave. So if your, your aircraft is going slowly enough, the sound waves can get out of the way. If it's going too fast, 
bigger than the speed of sound. The sound waves don't get out the uh, out the way quick enough, and you get this wakes pattern going backwards, and that's the boom, which is the reason when you hear an aircraft going past, you hear the boom going past and then it disappears because it's like it's the wake has passed through through you and then gone on. So is that the energy? Is that the sound energy essentially piling up in the air because the air molecules can't get out of their way fast enough? Yeah, essentially, what you happen is the air molecules can't move out the way because the sound is moving slower than the aircraft is and therefore they pile up and yes they do they collate together and so you get very very high pressures and the shock waves are are generated by very high pressures stick around for more science rules after this From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Science Rules is back. We live in industrial societies, and there is sound, 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 noise, noise, noise everywhere. And we have a voice message that I think uh, touches on this. Can we roll that digital recording? Hey, Science Rules. David Tillman calling you from Northern California. What are the dangers of high-powered sound to living creatures, explicitly concerning helicopter blade vibrations on the human body and sonic blasting on ocean life forms? Yes, I mean, you could add to your list there also uh, pile-driving wind farms, by the way, in the sea, which is very, very common around Europe, or even airborne, you know, so... In a city, we know that birds are having to change how they sing because of traffic noise. So it happens not just for marine animals, but marine animals are particularly affected. It happens also for animals on land. So unless it's really loud, what you mostly get from the noise is you is you change the animal's behaviour. So, for example, it's, if you take, say, birdsong outside, the species you get in cities is changing. And it's changing because the species that are thriving are the ones that can live alongside the roads and live alongside the man-made problems that they, that we create. And a lot of that's about noise. So if you can't sing, sing above the level of the traffic, your species has got a problem. So we've, we're seeing what happens is you get things like the balance of species in cities changes as, uh, or they adapt their song to try and get it to work. Um, you might... We, Proving long-term damage to marine animals is something that people are researching but have not proved. We know it creates stress to animals to have this constant noise. And we know there's a fear that, for example, pile-driving wind farms uh, makes animals move away. Maybe they fail to mate or they fail to find uh, feeding grounds and therefore starve. When you say pile-driving, you're talking about erecting the wind turbine? Yeah, actually... You've got to stick them in the seabed, and so you've got to blast a great big or drill a great big hole, and it's a very, very noisy activity. And the thing about underwater is sound travels really readily. Um, That's one of the features of water. So you make sound, it goes quite a long way. Um, And so they know that, you know, fish will avoid areas and seals will avoid areas while power driving uh, is going on. Does that create long-term harm is rather difficult to prove. So the the evidence of, of damage is is weak in some of these cases. I mean, there's some definite, you know, short-term problems, military uh, sonar, for example, and there's really good evidence that very high levels of, of sonar activity has caused problems to whales, for example, and has caused beachings and stuff like that. So we do know it does cause harm, but those very high no- noise levels are actually relatively rare. It's the, the big harm is this constant drone that we have from traffic, from aircraft, underwater, from shipping, and it's one of the interesting features of lockdown is a lot of that's gone away. And suddenly loads of scientists are doing research on what happens when it's gone away. Well, yeah, this is um, this is one of the things I'm wondering. 
what is all the sound doing to us? <laughs> what are the, what are, what is yeah, the effect Corey, of noise pollution on humans? you were deeply affected. You were deeply affected by how quiet it all got. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're asking me about animals. We're an animal. We are equally uh, harmed. I mean, so there's, there's lots of data around about uh, cardiovascular disease caused by um, things like traffic noise. Uh, if you live near an airport, so you get your sleep disturbed, that will cause long-term health problems. We have uh, evidence, for example, that if you go into a school and it's in a noisier neighborhood, the kids attain less because the noise is uh, harming their learning. So there's lots of problems from these sort of environmental noises. They may not be damaging your hearing. They may not be that loud, but the incessant and long-term exposure to uh, environmental noise is a problem. So it was a big deal. I worked in an office and there was a proposal that came around. This is in the 1980s about having a white noise generator or pink noise generator to add noise because it actually then you would have something to tune out. What is the value or purpose of that sort of thing? Yeah, open plan offices are a really interesting case because they're really popular but among architects and managers, but they're really disliked by most workers. You have to have to operate in them. Um, one of the problems is, I mean, if you've got a lot of people making phone calls. You know that there'll be someone on there who'll be talking loud and you will find it really difficult to ignore their voice. And that's because you're hearing half a conversation. A voice is a really you know, it's full of information and your brain latches onto it. That's information. I need to know what it is. So it's very hard to ignore. So the idea of using some masking noise, you suggested pink noise, a sort of rumbling sound, is that if you make that loud enough that you can't hear the words, then your brain will be less uh, attention, it'll be less attention grabbing because the noise isn't very interesting. So you're trying to get away from the words that someone's saying on this very boring conversation they're having, which is attention grabbing to noise, which is less so. So yeah, you can you can use those kind of effects, um, and particularly in sort of open plan offices, it's it's also a question of getting privacy. That call that someone might be having might be quite a personal call, and you actually don't want to you know people listening in. So it's one way of dealing with open plan offices. It, it, you know, some people say it's a good idea. Some people say maybe you should design people so they can just do it naturally. But People have known about acoustics for a very long time. You just did a paper recently about the acoustics of Stonehenge. They were paying attention to acoustics back then. Oh my goodness, then. So I wanted to get to Stonehenge. <laughs> so my father was an amateur astronomer and Stonehenge fascinated him. He had books about Stonehenge being decoded and all this stuff. And I went to Stonehenge and I will say to the listeners, if you ever get a chance when the pandemic calms down, it's not far from London. It is crazy. These people took the enormous stones from hundreds of kilometers away and brought it into a big circle situation. What is What are the acoustics of Stonehenge? Yeah, well, so, yeah, this was what the project was all about. So if you go to the current Stonehenge, I, mean, it, uh, I visited it only a few months ago, just before lockdown, and it is, it is an amazing place to go. But from an acoustic perspective, it is nothing like what it used to be. About half, two-thirds of the stones are actually missing, or lie, and a lot of them are lying on the floor. So the acoustics, when all the stones were upright in place, is very different. So how do you get back to what was the acoustics like? Well, we actually built a scale model, a bit like... Uh, they do with console hall design nowadays. You know, if they want to know what a console hall sounds like, they can build a small model. So ours was one to twelve. So literally, you shrink the stones down by to a twelfth of its size. So Stonehenge, That's like like the, like the little model in Spinal Tap. Yeah, it's actually funny enough. Spinal Tap. The joke there is they mixed up feet and inches, and that's so it's one to twelve. And mine was a one to twelve scale model. Though that was complete coincidence. It wasn't to allow a Spinal Tap to be mentioned. Yeah, I, I think about their, their their models. They had one trilithon, which is two uprights at the top. I had one hundred and fifty seven stones. So it's it was there was slightly more than they had on stage. Did you um, use stones to represent stones, or some different material? So for an acoustic scale model, what it's got to do is it's got to have the properties at 12 times the frequency because you've got to go test at 12 times the frequency for a 1 to 12 scale model. So the wave size, the wavelength, is the right uh, relative to the size of the stones. Yeah. yeah, the proportion's got to be right. So if you were testing a 1,000 hertz, which is 1,000 vibrations a second in full scale, you'd be testing at 12,000 hertz in the model. And so actually these have to have the right properties at 12 times the frequency. So they don't actually, I mean, stone would be fine, but it'd be rather hard to work with. We use 3D printing and molding with plaster polymer mixes because we didn't have to make it out of stone. I can tell you it, 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 the thought of chipping stone away to do it would be rather hard work. 
So anyway, okay. what, what did so you So what did you find out? Well, the interesting thing is it does have acoustics. So when you go and look at this model, it's got no ceiling. It's got lots of gaps between the stone. And yet there's reflections that go on for quite a long time before dying away. Maybe reverberation time, which is a measure of how long sound lingers before dying away, is about 0.6 seconds. And that's really surprising. I would have thought it would be almost dead. So that's the first surprise. Uh, I think the other thing we found, because what you're trying to do is think about how people use these spaces. As we know that human rituals involve sound, once we understand the sound of these places better, we can start thinking about well, how, how might they have used it. And the sound reinforcement you get, the amplification for the reflections, which helps music and helps speech, exists in the, in the main circle, which implies that actually, if you're wanting to do a ceremony, you're better off doing it in the circle to people within the circle. And people actually outside wouldn't have had a, a better sound. In fact, it would have been slightly worse than being outside uh, in, fr- in sort of kind of an open field. So then, like, we have singing. We have hymns in churches. Uh, it's all about singing. So do you, are we speculating that uh, ancient peoples were singing in the circle? Well, we know that music was going on in those times because there's, there's musical instruments have been found in Europe around those, those times. They, there's drums, there's flutes that are kind of uh, animal bones with, 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 which you blow over the edge with, with tone holes in them. So we know music was around. And of course, the oldest musical instrument is presumably the voice, uh, although you, you know, there's no archaeological evidence for musical voices because, of course, what, what exists, everything's yeah, yeah. disappeared, unfortunately. So I think, you know, it would be very surprising if there wasn't speech and there wasn't something, you know, musical sound going on in that space. Is it a true fact or a false fact, as I like to joke, that when somebody loses one of his other senses or other senses, let's say eyesight, the, the sense of sound becomes more pronounced? Is that true or not true? It depends a bit on when in life it happens. So certainly as a child, if you were to lose one of your senses, then your when, you, when your, your brain is learning and configuration, configuring itself, it will use the bits of the brain. Let's say you, you haven't got vision. The brain will, ha- will take over bits of the visual cortex to help out with other senses because it's available. If, however, you were to lose your senses if, let's say I went blind tomorrow, my brain is already configured in a certain way. It's hard, although it's plastic, it's hard for me to reconfigure it. It's a very slow process when you get to my age. And so therefore it's less likely that my brain would reconfigure to try and take advantage of this. By reconfigure, I mean in, in quite in minor ways in a sense. Subtle way. So here this brings us to, to a great another question. voicemail. Uh, can we roll that digital recording? Hi, Bill. This is Jeff from Indianapolis. I'm wondering if some people, musicians, have um, the ability to hear more deeply or hear more fully than some other people in the same way that someone may have naturally more of a palate to taste the intricacies of food or the components of a fine wine, which is something I certainly can't do. Wondering if there's kind of an equivalency there. Thank you all for everything. Bye-bye. Yeah, musical training has a big has a big effect on on how we perceive sound. And by musical training, I don't mean just listening. I mean actually actively being coached. You know, learning an instrument for ten years, for example. Right, with, the clarinet with, as an example off the top of your head. Yeah, ten years. Yeah, so I learned <laughs> as a kid. I learned the clarinet for ten years, and that will have changed how I process sound. Um, and uh, we you even see it into older life. I mean, so whenever we do studies into people's perception, one of the questions we might ask is, is actually, have you got musical training? Because it does affect, depending on what you're looking at. In terms what do of you? What are the differences between somebody with musical training and somebody without? Right? It? Can you actually see a but difference the, in the brain? You can, certainly can uh, actually test different abilities. So one of the things that a musician is really good at is picking out one sound from a lot of others. So that's a skill we all have. So we're trying to attend to someone's speech and it's a noisy place. I don't know. We're among the tribe and we're all sat around in a cave. There's lots of babble going on. We need to pick out that person's voice. Well, the musicians are particularly good at doing that because of course they need to do that to play in a group. So one thing you find with musicians is they age is actually their ability to do that, that that sort of hearing ability to keep picking out speech from noise goes on into an older age than it does if you're a non-musician so it, it seems to have some sort of kind of benefit into into older age as well along this line the reason we listen to mu- most of us listen to music is for pleasure is there something deep deep within us associated with the pleasure or displeasure with sound and so can we roll that digital recording about pleasant sounds 
Hi, Bill. It's Natalie. My question is about sound as it relates to ASMR and how when some people listen to ASMR, they experience a physical reaction, like whether it be goosebumps or any sort of tingling. So I just wanted to know, is there an optimal sound, whether a frequency or something like that, that can cause a physical reaction like pleasure in humans? ASMR is, uh, help us out on ASMR, it's uh, autonomous. But it's a, it's a made up science term, so I don't know if we need to say what it is because it actually has no meaning, but it's a definite effect. And it's these autonomous sort of... Autonomous sensory meridian... Response. Response. Yes. I've actually had student projects at Salford looking into this because the terminology, who knows who came up with that term? It has no relationship to science at all. And whoa, whoa, listen to that, people. Listen to that hardcore skeptic right there. No relationship to science at all. Okay, so what is it? Why are people so obsessed with it? I I think it's important point to say it's a real effect, and people really do have an effect. It's just the terminology is is a a bit rubbish, to be honest. A bit like when you get these sort of kind of makeup adverts or sort of fragrance adverts where they make pseudo-scientific terms. It just rankles. But, But what you're getting is you're getting a sound which is what you would not only normally hear very close to your ear. So it's a very intimate sound. And some people get a sort of like the spine tingles, a bit like, you know, tingles down the back of their, uh, their, their, their neck. And it's not sexual, although it does look quite sexual. Um, what I would say is what we found from the student projects is, yes, there's some people who get real euphoric, you know, and they get a sort of kind of real pleasure out of this. Most people watch it and think it's weird, and some people think it's really quite odd. So it's not a universal reaction. So if so you what like if it... You're... How many students have you had look into ASMR? It was a couple of find? it was a couple of project students for, for their final year project. I, I I offer some very strange final year projects in our degree, and it was just it, it done the rounds. I've been asked about it on 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 radio and television a few times. And I thought, well, no one studied this. Let's have a look into it. And I think what I mean the main finding was that people talk about this being a marvelous thing, but it's only a few people who have this effect. In, a, in the extreme, um, and f- good for them if they like it because they obviously get a lot of pleasure out of it. Well, I am curious about those those negative effects. At least uh, f- for me, for instance, you know that 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 squeak of the you know the fork against a, a bare plate is a very intense reaction. I can sort of understand why people might have intense reactions to you know the roar of a lion or the slam of a door, you know, things that are obvious danger signs. But why do so many people have intense reactions to? That those kind of like those screeching or you know, sort of high pitched sounds. Oh, wait, wait, you screeching, you're getting really close. So, the, the best theory I've ever heard is that it's rather like a distress call. So, if you take the sound of, as you say, a, a nice scraping on a plate, what you've got is you've got a high pitched sound where the pitch is quite similar to someone screaming, but it's also got what's called roughness. So, roughness is, it's, you know, go ah or ah. That sort of roughness that you get in the sound, which happens when you're distressed and you do a distress call without really thinking about it. And so it's got roughness and it's got pitch, which is quite similar to distress calls. And that is probably what it's fundamentally about is that you're kind of, you know, sound is is a really important early warning system and your brain is very quickly reacting to features that appear to be something very important and dangerous. And that is what's creating the response. Is roughness then... uh... So there's overtones. The reason a violin sounds different from a piano playing the same note, right? There's, there's yeah, uh, it's a different, so- it's a different kind of frequency range. So what you imagine you're running your fingernails down the blackboard. They stop and they start. They stop and they start, and they're doing that on the orders of I don't know. 20, 30, 40, 50 times a second. So it's it's quite low frequency roughness compared um, so to the main note or sound, which might be up at 400 hertz or something like that. Yeah, yeah, a tuning A would be 400 hertz. I mean, there's mm. a really interesting paper lo- looking at this. Um, and they say, yeah, this is sort of a unique niche. So you've got frequencies which are like my pitch of my voice is about 100 hertz. And, and above is where you get musical instruments. Then you've got actually the rate at which you speak. So you're talking with words, I know, a couple of syllables a second. So you've got something going on about two hertz and then there's this middle range this sort of kind of 50 hertz between one and 100 hertz where it's not really much used and it seems to be where that roughness sits science rules will be right back
From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. You're listening to Science Rules. So you connected in uh, your second book, Neanderthals, with artificial intelligence. You know, and he, we here at Science Rules love artificial intelligence. We talk about it all it's the time. It's my second we favorite type of intelligence. It. What's going on with Neanderthals, us, and artificial intelligence when it comes to sounds? When I started to think about writing, writing the book, I was just thinking of what are the really important times in the development of the human voice. So first of all, there's when did we start speaking? And so, you know, you could go back, and I posed the question in the first chapter, did Neanderthals speak? So did we talk to another another type of human, another species of human. And I think more and more the evidence is that we probably did. Now, we can never be sure, but the more and more evidence we get, the more and more it seems that Neanderthals were What, what sort of evidence are you to, are, did we find? Well, so first of all, fundamentally, if you look at fossilization and you look at, say, bone structures of the ear, or you look at what anatomy they had in terms of the, you know, uh, the bits that fossilize around throat, and, and you know, they seem to have the bits that will work. I mean, I, I say seem to because... A lot of the vocal anatomy is soft stuff, which doesn't actually get preserved. Um, and then the other kind of evidence you look for is things like evidence that they were thinking beyond just surviving. So most people think that language is associated with going beyond just how do I get food each day and mate. Um, and therefore you start getting what's called symbolic thinking. So you get things like art being drawn, you get burials with you know, which are more than just throwing the yeah, body right, away. Or, or simple, simple jewelry and things like that, decorations. Yeah. So the book starts off with when did we develop language? And another important epoch is when technology changes the voice. And so I think Bill Edison inventing the phonograph. But then it ends up in the fact that we are teaching a new species to speak. We're teaching Google Home, our Alexas, or whatever it may be, to have conversations with us. And that really changes our attitude to devices and really ch is changing us. So there's a, you know, it's an interesting sort of new point where we start getting artificial speech, artificial speech recognition going on. And, and it's dying. I mean, the interesting thing is, is artificial intelligence isn't very intelligent, but as humans, we want to think it's very intelligent. So we imbue lots of things on it, which isn't actually really there. When you're talking to Siri, you presume that she has agency, that she is making decisions, that She's thoughtful. Yeah, you just look at the data, how many people say, I love you to Alexa and all this kind of stuff. You know, they kind of think in some way it's alive. As soon as you, you know, the interesting thing about computers is if you give a computer a voice or you make it into a robot so it moves, we suddenly think it's got much more agency than it really does. And, and we start treating it as though it's human. I mean, there's a, there was an example, you know, Boston Dynamics produced this robotic dog. And there's a very famous video. It's probably about five, 10 years ago, maybe five years ago, where they kicked this dog in the yeah. car park. And it was to show, wow, it can write itself without any help. They got loads of complaints about the cruelty to this robotic dog. It was very clearly robotic. It was a mechanical machine. It's not those, it didn't look anything like a dog apart from it had four legs. So we see, kind of suddenly seem to think these things are alive. And so we'll start talking to machines like Alexa as though they're real uh, alive things, even though what they are is connections through to internet search engines. They're not really that intelligent yet. So Corey and I have American accents. You have what sounds to us as uh, a, like a British accent. When, as a kid, during what we musically called the British Invasion, where uh, British rock and roll groups discovered blues and then showed U.S. audiences how cool this music actually was, if you'd been paying attention, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Herman's Hermits, when somebody sings with a British accent, it sounds to our ear, like an American accent. Is it true for a British person when he or she hears an American singing, it sounds like a British person singing? Or is this me just making stuff up? There is a tendency for young people to sing like American. On some of those early Rolling Stones records, Mick Jagger definitely was affecting a, an American Southern accent. I mean, the wonderful thing about the human voice is it's very flexible. And you, you could, you know, your vocal anatomy is kind of, 
infinitely flexible in a sense and you can sing in different accents and change them and maybe Mick Jagger was doing it deliberately to appeal to American audience I don't know because we certainly do that as as, as humans so if I I'm, I'm talking from Manchester which is up in the north of England but if I go back to my hometown in Bristol in the south my my southern accent will thicken because I'm trying to fit in with the locals so we kind of do that I mean you I've seen it in American elections that uh, I think the last person, politician I heard was about Clinton being criticised about changing her accent as she went around the country campaigning. Well, actually, this is something we all naturally do. We try and fit in better with where we are. And so actually changing how we talk is something we just do. We're sort of vocal chameleons. So maybe Mick Jagger was just doing to fit in because he wanted to sound, you know, wanted to sell some records in America. I don't know. I wanted to ask about the the origins of these accents. I mean, presumably at some point, uh, you know, Two or three hundred years ago, people over here in the colonies and over there in the in England spoke the same way. We definitely sound different now. How does that happen? And and you know, it, did you change? Did we change? Did we both change? I mean, the short answer is we both change. So, because the vocal anatomy isn't very fixed, it's very flexible. Accents just change; they just drift. So, if you have two, you know two populations separated by, in this case, the Atlantic, and they're not communicating very much, which they wouldn't have been in the past, their acts, their voices would just change and drift over time. And you see this with species. I mean, it's not just, you know, it's not just humans. You see it with with fish and you see it with cattle. You know, they, 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 they all have slight accents to them in their own sort of kind of calls. And over time, they will drift and they will change. So some of it's just natural drift of, of the voice just changing over time. And then some of it comes from cultural influences, which, of course, now, you know, you've got all the globalization, um, which is sort of changing things. Um, so, yeah, people in, in, in Britain are probably picking up more American idioms. And one of the really interesting changes is actually English as a second language, which is a dominant speaking style in you know i know there's lots of different versions in lots of cities like in america and britain which so what you've got is a mixing particularly in the cities where you've got lots of mixing of different cultures you've got lots of people talking across cultures who are all speaking english but not as their first language and that is creating a sort of mixed uh, accent in, in london it's called multicultural london english which is a kind of blend and now it would be blends of places like pakistan india bangladesh uh, yes. jamaica Cockney, the old traditional English language, all these sort of kind of, you know, melting pot coming together and creating this blended accent, which is how if you go down to the East End of London now, you won't get this Cockney, Bow Bells kind of uh, sort of uh, accent. That's disappeared now. It will be this what's called multicultural London English. It's extremely popular musical, My Fair Lady, where the whole premise is that if this guy can teach a woman who uh, has uh, a Cockney accent a, a more... Uh, Gentleman, what would we call it? Gentlemanly uh, ladies, uh, royal accent. What's the what's the descriptor for that? I don't know for sure, but I'm sure in Pygmalion or My Fair Lady they were heading for for received pronunciation. So RP is the accent that you think of if you think of an English accent. That's what most people think of, although it's only spoken by about two percent of Brits. What what do you call it? RP. Receive pronunciation, RP. Um, so it's the BBC accent. So you go and fight, listen to old BBC programmes or Lawrence Olivier doing Shakespeare or how the Queen used to speak. How did That's Churchill? All- did Churchill fit in I guess he did. I'd have to go and listen back. I mean, I'll give you, you know, if you have a villain in a Hollywood movie, Shere Khan in the original Jungle Book, that is an RP British voice. Um, so it's it's the it was the voice of university learning diplomats, and of course we spread it around the world because we at some point we had a l- large empire. But it's the voice of the establishment uh, is RP, and I'm sure that's probably what they were aiming for. But it's you know it's very much looked down on nowadays because it's got lots of connotations to it. Is it possible to meaningfully reconstruct old accents from before the time of voice recordings? Like, can we actually infer how Shakespeare would have performed Shakespeare? Yeah, well, you you can to a certain extent because well, you have a difficult time when you go beyond when when there was writing. So if you go, for example, when Stonehenge was around, there's no writing, so you have no idea what they were saying. But as soon as writing comes in, which I guess is something like six seven hundred AD, then you start having people writing things down. And actually, if you look at what's written down in those sort of texts in Britain, you find that what people write in the north and the south is different because people were talking differently. So you can start looking at it for Shakespeare. One of the things you can look for is you can look at the his his rhymes and you can see that some of the rhymes just don't work. 
um, love and prove are rhymed in a very famous sonnet. Um, and, you know, they obviously don't rhyme, but in his day, it was love and prove. They did actually rhyme because they were pronounced in a different way. So you can, by looking at rhyming couplets, for example, and then people, when you get into the 18th, 19th century, people are writing pronunciation dictionaries. So you get even more information about what goes on. So once you get into writing, you've got, you can have a good guess at what's going on, but you're there dependent on people being able to write down what people are saying in a sort of phonetic way. You know, we're taking it all the way back to, to Neanderthal times. So this is another thing I've wondered about. Is there a root language? I mean, I know there's, there's Indo-European and all these things are derived from it, but is there a theory of a single ancestral language that there was one way that language emerged and then all the other languages branched off from it? I think these, the short answer is I don't know. And we do know there was a mass extinction and we got down to a fairly small number of individuals at humans at one point, didn't we? So I guess there probably wasn't much language variation at that time. But the thing about language is the words we use are pretty arbitrary. So when it starts springing up, it will start to diverge very quickly. And the reason you have, you know, so I'm talking to a microphone, I'm looking at a computer screen, I'm in a house. Or why is it called a house? It has no relationship. It doesn't sound like the structure of a house. All these words, are, uh, linguists would talk about them being arbitrary. Um, and therefore, I would think it would, even if it started off with someone speaking, uh, developing language, it would diverge very, very quickly. I mean, there are some words which are what's called iconic and they do have, you know, what you say has some meaning uh, to, uh, you know, to the actual what it sounds like. And onomatopoeia is a good example. So what on a Zoom call, well, if you think of the normal meaning of Zoom, which is go fast, it sounds a bit like Zoom, sounds like someone zooming off, doesn't it? So there's obviously a relationship there. The other ones is ones you learn early in life. So mama in languages, the m sound is often associated with mothers. Nasal sounds are interesting. So the n, which is often in words associated with noise, if you make a n sound, it's going down your nose. So if you go n and pinch your nose, you'll find you can't talk anymore because the n will stop. So there seems to be nasal sounds, which is obviously something, you know, is associated with saying the word nose in different languages. Has artificial intelligence and our interaction with these machines changed people's preferences in what they want in a concert hall, in a school, in a, a gathering place? Or is it just too early to say? I think it's it's too early to say. Um, I mean, there were, I think, I mean, technology has made a difference. You know, we're using all the electronics with microphones and loudspeakers. That's made a huge difference. You know, we couldn't be having this conversation or you couldn't be talking to more than, I don't know, a few hundred people without amplification. So that's made a huge difference to communication for mankind, but that's sort of hundred-year-old technology. I think. I mean, there's been suggestions that maybe artificial intelligence and these speaking Alexas will change how we talk, but I suspect not because we, you know. So some suggestions is let's say you're Scottish. Scottish classically have problems in getting these speech recognition systems to work because their accent is strong. So there's been a suggestion that, that, that these artificial intelligence engines, because they don't want a nice neutral accent, that people will tend to start talking more neutrally. But I doubt if that will change people's behaviour because we already change how we talk all the time. So if I was to talk to a baby, I would go into motherese. I'd go into that sort of language that you use for young children um, and you simplify your language. So we're used to switching how we speak. How I'm talking to you now is different to when I go downstairs and talk to my wife and it's different to when I stand up and do a lecture. We, we, we switch how we speak. I mean, where it would make a big difference is I think when if, if teenagers and younger children who are still developing their speaking abilities start to change how they speak because then it could go into adulthood. But at the moment, if you, I don't have an Alexa or one of those. If you give me one of those, I wouldn't anticipate it changing how I speak to my wife. And if I cho- talk to my wife like I talk to Alexa, I probably wouldn't have a wife for very much longer. Yeah, but, but you would still have Alexa, so there's that. <laughs> well, listen, so we're, we're, all, we're all jammed up in our, our homes and our apartments right now. Are you doing anything special using sound to make things more tolerable? Do you listen to more music? Do you create environmental sounds? Do you have any suggestions for people? I mean, to be honest, the marvel has been the lack of sound. I mean, it's hard to marvel at anything during this horrible time. But um, I live right near Manchester Airport, and uh, which is the second biggest airport in Britain. And um, I often go into the countryside via Manchester Airport, and the lack of aircraft noise has been quite wonderful because you can hear all the nature. I mean, going past Manchester Airport and hearing insects buzzing, you wouldn't normally get that kind of going on uh, as, as you cycle or walk past. So um, that's been 
you know, just enjoying the natural sounds that, are, you know, normally are swamped by the sort of constant rumble of traffic noise and aircraft has been, been, been really a great pleasure. But it's, but it's funny because it's all tinged with very great sadness. So though I can, in the, in the moment, go, oh, isn't that amazing to hear that? You can't help feeling that the lack of the sounds of vibrancy in the city is is sort of kind of, well, it's dystopian, isn't it? This, this is a kind of dystopian kind of situation. So it's hard to revel in it for very long. Corey, 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 speaking of sound, I, I hear something. It's electronic kind of crackling. It's time for the lightning round. Why do I sound so great when I sing in the shower? Because you get reflections off the tiles in the shower, which are very hard, and it gives you, and you're essentially singing to the resonance of the room, and it makes your voice sound more boomy, louder, and generally, if you sound louder, you sound more powerful, and your voice sounds nicer. <sighs> What's the best sound? Is there a best sound? Well, I think it's very individual, um, but for me, uh, I would say either something like na- nature. Most people, you know, like bird song, the warble of a songbird. Or I really remember my kids when they were younger. I had twins, and they were chattering away and playing with each other, and that's a marvelous sound as well. What's the worst sound? For me, the, I guess the worst sound is the dentist drill because it's just associated with pain. Oh, to be that's honest, that's a bad one. Um, yeah. So it's, it's an one. association. Yeah. Uh, is there a loudest sound? Well, it probably would be Krakatoa going off, um, certainly the loudest one we've ever measured. Um, and, you know, they had barometers out and they measured that going around the world several times. So that was probably the loudest. And the reports of that, of it bursting people's eardrums and all this is quite phenomenal. Uh, what's the softest sound that a typical person can hear? We can we can hear a really quiet sounds. I remember the BBC asked us to record the sound of a pin drop has been the quietest sound. It was remarkably loud, actually. So that <laughs> failed. Um, but yeah, we can hear, you know, if we if our ears were any more sensitive, all we would hear would be noise. We're right down at the limit of sensitivity because our hearing is our early warning system. Is there something about sound or some things about sound that you want everybody to know? I think I think what I'd like everyone to, to do really, rather than know, is just to, to learn themselves by taking their headphones off and going to somewhere where they can hear nature and not hear loads of man-made noise and just listen. And just hear out what there is and what's going on around them. So I'd like people to discover it themselves. You'd be surprised, you know. When I, when I was researching uh, the sound book, you know, I was going around just doing a lot of listening. And even these simple things, you know, you're walking along a canal, you go on the bridge, and suddenly your footsteps change. And it's you know the the quality of that sound is different. And I think you know learning those little things is quite delightful. I've I've started taking sound shots in addition to snapshots on my phone of just listening to you know running water, rustling leaves, things like that. It's very satisfying. Yeah, I used to I used to carry a digital recorder around all the time because I, you know, in case I, I could capture something new. But now I, I tend to use my phone nowadays. It's not bad at recording uh, unless I know it's going to be something really difficult and I get out all the recording gear. But yeah, I think there is this delight in just listening and it connects you with the world around you. I think one of the problems is we're not necessarily that well connected to our world around. We, we get in our cars, we turn the radio on, we try and ignore what's outside the windows trying to connect with the outside world is good for us connect with the outside world with sound so thank you trevor thank you dr cox for joining us today to talk about the science of sound our guest today has been professor trevor cox he is a professor of acoustic engineering at the university of salford in britain and author of the sound book and now you're talking Remember, when it comes to understanding how you hear anything, including this podcast you're listening to right now, Science Rules! And if you like Science Rules, please take a moment to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out, helps other people learn about the show, helps us find out what you want to hear. So thank you. Be sure to look at uh, my socials, as the kids call them, for more information on our upcoming guests. I'm at Bill Nye on all those things. Meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, give us a call at 201-472-0785 here in the States, or submit a question to askbillnye.com. Science Rules is produced by Harry Huggins and this very same Corey S. Powell. Hey. Casey Halford mixed this episode and composed our original theme. Josephine Margarana is our executive producer. And at Stitcher, you heard it. Science, Science Rules.
Stitcher. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions.